It's good to see y'all in the house of the Lord today. If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, let's turn to the 18th, 19th chapter of the Gospel of John. Right in there somewhere. John 18 or 19. Now you remember last week we started a four-week series and we're going to wind it up Easter Sunday. And we started, we talked last week about the mockery of the cross. And today we're going to have the second in that series. And this one is called The Majesty of Calvary. The Majesty of Calvary. Last week it was the mockery of Calvary. I'm sorry, not the mockery of the cross, but mockery of Calvary. And this week, Majesty of Calvary. Now, as you're turning, be sure to put your bookmark because we are going to look at quite a bit of Scripture. Not as much as we did last Sunday, but we'll be bouncing around all over the place. And uh, you might want to take pen in hand and jot down some notes because there will be Scripture that I allude to, Scripture that I quote, that uh, you may want to go back and look at later on. But as we start and we talk about the majesty of Calvary, you know, and here we're working up toward Easter, which is the granddaddy of them all as far as Christian holidays. But probably not too far behind that is Christmas. And, you know, Christmas is one of the highlights of the Christian faith because it is filled with warmth. It's filled with joy and, and love and goodwill. And, and what we do at Christmas, of course, we celebrate the birth of, of Jesus, and it kind of causes us to gaze at that baby, think about that baby in the manger, and know that peace is now possible because the Prince of Peace has arrived. You know, you, you start reading the story of Christmas, and, and it's filled with shepherds, and it's filled with this, this big shining star and this choir that, that was singing. And it, Christmas is marked by light. It's marked by hope. Yet all of the events that transpired around that first Christmas was all pointing to the cross. Because Jesus had to come and did come for a purpose, for a reason. Now, in one of my favorite Christmas hymns, and I should have looked it up and I didn't, that's what you saw me thumbing through the book trying to find it, but the hymn writer clearly states and understood the reality that Christ was Born to die that men may live. Have, have you ever thought about that? That Christ was born to die that men may live. And that's a very thought-provoking statement. It's somewhat disturbing. But yet, at the same time, it's very powerful. And it's a very glorious truth. And here's the reason why. Every one of us, every human being on the face of the earth are born under a death sentence because of the disobedience of our ancient parents. You remember way back there in the book of Genesis when God created the earth, it was just the way He wanted. It was good. It was perfect. But then He invented this thing called Adam and Eve. And boy, did they botch it up. And they did a good job of it. And right there is where it started. 
That's what I'm talking about when I talk about our ancient parents. We all have a sin nature. We are born with a sin nature. We have the inclination to sin. But it is our, it, it, it's the penalty of fallen people. It's what transpires because of sin. But death was not Jesus' penalty. And I don't want you to, to misunderstand that. It was His destiny. It was His mission. As I said, He came for a reason. He came for a purpose. It was not His unavoidable fate. It was His purpose for coming to the earth from the get-go. So now here today as we talk about the majesty of Calvary, we come to that awful and awesome moment when the fulfillment of Christ's mission is upon us. Now we see Christ fulfilling the destiny that caused Him to say what we're fixing to read to Pilate. So let's turn to the Gospel of John, the 18th chapter. Be sure to put you a bookmark there. And let's read verse 37. Y'all got it? Amen? Amen. Pilate therefore said unto him, Art thou a king then? Jesus answered, Thou sayest that I am a king, or rightly, thou rightly say that I am a king. To this end was I born, and for this cause came I into the world, that I should bear witness unto the truth. Every one that is of the truth heareth my voice. Now, you know, I want you to understand something, some things from this verse. I want you to understand that when Jesus died on the cross, Jesus died in splendor. He died in majesty. He didn't def- die in defeat. He didn't die in loss. You notice G- that Jesus was asked a question by Pilate. Pilate was very candid with him. And basically we would say, let me ask you a point blank question. And Pilate did. And that question was, are you a king? And you notice that Jesus answers him very clearly. Now, that, that he is a king, but that he is not, his, his, the kind of king that, that he is, is his kingdom is not of this world. So there seems to be no question in Pilate's mind that Jesus is speaking the truth. That that Jesus is completely innocent and has done absolutely nothing wrong. But then on the other hand, if you keep reading in there and you look at this story, it seems also apparent that while Pilate recognized the truth, that, that Pilate chose to reject it. Now hear me, it is a huge tragedy on our part when we fail to recognize the truth. It is even a greater tragedy when we recognize the truth but fail to heed it. And that's exactly what Pilate did. Now, I know in this old world that we live in, y'all are just like me, every time... I watch the news. 
I wonder, am I getting the truth? And you just kind of wonder about it. But there's one thing that I will guarantee, and as a country boy nowadays, there's not much I will guarantee. But I will guarantee that the Word of God is the truth. I will guarantee you that. Now, this, this is what I want you to understand about the truth. When there is no standard of truth, there is no standard for right and wrong. When, you know, in, in, in Jesus' Word, and we have a standard for truth. And what does that tell us? That we have, a, you know, an obligation to moral behavior because we know what the truth is. If we believe the Word of God. Now when you start looking at the Gospel writers, Matthew and Mark and Luke, they describe the agony of the cross, the humiliation of the cross, and, and, and they, they rightly present it as a tool of torture. You remember last week I told you that the Romans were the ones that fine-tuned it. They, they got the idea... The, the Carthaginians, or however you say it, were the ones that had invented it, but then the Romans tweaked it. They fine-tuned it. And what they wanted, when they put you on that cross, they wanted you to go through as much pain and suffering and agony and torture as you possibly could endure. And, and so the way those three Gospel writers present it, that, that is the way they look at it. But John's Gospel, however kind of takes a little different angle. He, he looks at things from a little different perspective. He kind of paints a little different portrait of the events of that first Good Friday. And what John wants us to see, and this is of utmost importance, I believe, John wants us to see the cross as a throne of glory. He wants us to see uh, the, the cross as a throne of power. A throne from which the Son of God not only conquers sin, but He conquers death and He conquers Satan at the same time. You remember Satan thought he had Jesus right where he wanted Him when he had Him on that cross. He thought he won. He thought that there was no way he could get out of this deal. But he didn't ever consider the fact that he didn't stay in that tomb. He came out of there. And he was victorious. And right there, he defeated Satan. So John presents us with the unquestionable evidence that, that the death of the King of Kings, who was to embrace his greatest glory and also embrace the cross. Now, this crucifixion event that we see in these Gospels was about a six hour long process. And during those six hours, Jesus had seven statements that He made from the cross. Some people refer to it as Jesus' last seven words or His last seven statements. And I want to tell you about these seven statements here just briefly. And you may want to take pen in hand. I'm not going to... Uh, turn and read all the Scripture. I'm just going to quote it to you. But what I want you to see about these seven last statements of Jesus was the first three were vertical, I mean horizontal in nature. In other words, 
It was describing Jesus' conclusion of His dealings with mankind. So these are the statements Jesus made characterized by the following three things. First, we have forgiveness. You remember last week in Luke 23, 34, Jesus said what? He said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Here He is. Suffering on that cross. Going through the torture, the agony, and He looks down at the very men that are putting Him to death and says, Father, forgive them. Now you think about that. That's tough. That is tough. Next we have redemption. You find this in Luke 23.43. You remember Jesus talked to the, the, the two thieves that were hanging on the cross. And you remember one of them was talking trash to him. And the other one said, remember me. And what did Jesus say in Luke 23, 43? He said, today thou shalt be with me in paradise. The next one was compassion. And you find this in John 19, 26 and 27. And this is when Jesus, and I'm going to talk more about this in a minute. When Jesus looked down and He saw His mother and He said, Woman, behold thy son. Now there was a reason Jesus referred to her as woman. Notice He didn't say mom, mother, he said, woman. I'll talk more about in that in a minute. Now the next four, the final four statements that Jesus made were vertical in nature. In other words, He was talking to God. And He was talking about what He was doing, what He was accomplishing by dying on the cross of Calvary. And so these statements express the spiritual aspects of Christ's work as He progresses through these stages. The first one we have is abandonment. You remember in Matthew 27, 46, Jesus said, My God, my God, why hast Thou forsaken Me? For the simple reason. Jesus had just taken the sins of humans all on Himself. Every sin that has been committed is being committed or ever will be committed. And why did God not look on Him? Because God can't look on sin. And He knew. He knew that He was going to suffer this abandonment. Matter of fact, and I think I talked about this last week, when He went out in the Garden of Gethsemane, with His disciples the night before He was crucified or before He was arrested, you remember He prayed with such great intensity that it says His sweat was like drops of blood. And you remember He said, Father, if there's any other way we can accomplish this. But then He says, not my will, Your will. There was no other way to accomplish it. And he knew he was going to suffer the abandonment. The next one was readiness. You find this in John 19, 28. 
He says, all things are accomplished, I thirst. Then we have fulfillment in John 19 and verse 30, where Jesus simply says, it is finished. It's done. And then the last is in Luke 23, 46, when He says, Father, into Thy hands I commit My Spirit. Now, you remember also when Jesus died on the cross that they nailed a sign up over His head on the cross. And that sign says, This is Jesus, King of the Jews. And it was true. It was absolutely the truth. Everything about His crucifixion, everything about what He was going through on that cross was, was you know, this, this crucifixion spoke of His true majesty. Not only as the King of the Jews, but as King of kings. So I've got about three points that I want to bring out when we talk about the majesty of of Calvary. And the first one is this. And I want you to turn to John the 19th chapter and look in verse 24. The first point that I make is the the majesty of compassion. John 19 verse 24. Y'all got it? Amen? Amen? They said therefore among themselves, this is the guys that crucified Jesus, let us not rend it or tear it, but cast lot for it whose it shall be, that the Scripture might be fulfilled, which saith, They parted my raiments or garments among them, and for my vestures they did cast lots. These things therefore the soldiers did. Now therefore stood by the cross of Jesus his mother, his mother's sister Mary, the wife of Cleophas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciples standing by whom he loved, he saith unto his mother, Woman, behold thy son. Then saith he to the disciples, Behold thy mother. And from that hour that disciple took her unto his own home. Now, the first thing that I want to point out here, I want you to see the contrast between the soldiers and the women. Because what we see going on here, the soldiers are gambling for his clothes. And that first verse we read, it says, let's, let's, let's uh, gamble, let's, let's basically shoot dice to see who gets his coat. Now, that was fulfilled, filling Scripture from Psalms 22.18. It had been prophesied years before Jesus was crucified that that was going to transpire. That kind of amazes me. But, but you see how these guys were gambling for His clothes, so they responded to the Son of Man one way, but the, 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 the women that were there responded a very different way. The soldiers responded with greed and with apathy, while the women with love and devotion. Very different motives, very different hearts. Now, 
as Jesus gazed down from the cross, who did He see? There was dear old mom. Oh my. There was dear old mom. And, and I've got to just point something out to you. Well, let's, let's just go and read it. We ain't got nothing else to do. Let's turn to Luke, the second chapter. I, I, I want to show you something here. Let's go to how much y'all want to read. Let's start in verse 25. And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And the same man was just in the bout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Ghost was upon him. And it was revealed unto him by the Holy Ghost that he should not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came by the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him after the custom of the law, then took he him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now let us thy servant depart in peace according to thy word, for my eyes have seen thy salvation. Now, Here's what I want to point out to you real quick. And I'm going to read some more in just a minute. So stay put. Well, let's just read it right now. Let's go down to... Oh, I know what I wanted to say. Here, here Mary and, and Joseph take Jesus to the temple basically to dedicate Him to the Lord after the custom of the law. Now, Jesus is, is a little older now. He's not this little little tiny baby anymore. But, but as a loving mother, here this complete stranger runs up and grabs your son up in his arms and starts praising God. Do you think you would be just a little bit uncomfortable here? But that's what Simeon does. But that's not the end of it. Now, I want you to look down in about Verse 34, And Simeon blessed them and said unto Mary his mother, Behold, this child is set. That word set is destined for the fall and rising again of many in Israel and for a sign which shall be spoken against. Then look what he says. Yea, a sword shall pierce through thy own soul also, but the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. Now you think about this. You think about this. And this is what I want you to understand. Here, And I've used this as a Christmas sermon. Because right after this, you see where it starts talking about Anna. Two different people looking for two different things. And the title of that sermon that I do... As I ask you a question, what are you waiting for for Christmas? You see, Simeon was waiting to see God's Son. But then he makes this very profound statement to his mama. And let me tell you something. What he tells her 
I'm sure got her undivided attention. He's not saying Merry Christmas and Happy New Year. He's saying, what, look, look, this is what's going to happen to your son. And you're going to see it with your very own eyes. How many times in the Bible did somebody tell Mary and Joseph something about their son looking toward the future? And it says, Mary pondered these things in her heart. And I'm sitting here wondering, She's sitting there watching her son. And I can just see the tears going down her face. I can just see her shaking just uncontrollably. And everything that she has been told, she is seeing coming alive right before her very eyes. I'll get to the point in a minute. But I've got to tell you all a story. I may have told you all this story before. If I did, stop me and I won't tell it. But years ago, April 12, 1977, some of y'all knew my brother, O.D. Died when he was 26 years old. He had died a year or two before. And they had brought him back. But this time, there's no doubt in my mind, that Jesus showed up and He said, O.D., let's go home. It's time. But I remember my grandma, the only grandparent that I knew, my mother's mother, walking up to that casket, screaming at the top of her lungs, O.D., come back. Come back. And I remember my mom walking up there shaking from the top of her head to the bottom of her feet. Telling her mom, he suffered enough. He wouldn't have come back if she could have made it happen. He was in the presence of God. And I know, as any good mother would have done, If she could have took his place, she would have done it in the blink of an eye. You've been there, done that. And here's my dad. World War II Navy veteran like the Rock of Gibraltar. Probably didn't say that right. But pretty close. And my dad had a statement. And when, you know, my dad was kind of like E.F. Hutton. Y'all remember the old commercial when E.F. Hutton speaks, people listen? Well, my dad, when he said, okay, boys, it's time to go, you'd see five boys come to life. And my dad said, boys, it's time to go. In other words, it's time to get your mama out of here because just like Jesus said, it's finished. It's done. It's complete. Now don't think I'm making the comparison between my mother, I mean my, my brother and my, my and Jesus' death. That's not what this is about. 
But I just wonder what was going through Mary's mind as she was watching that boy die. And was, was those words Simeon's head coming back to her? But here's the thing that really, really, really I want you to see about this situation. And it talks about in there the other Marys that were there and... and uh, uh, you know, the mother of James and John and Mary, the wife of Cle- Cle- Cleophas and Mary Magdalene. Mary Magdalene, as I told y'all last week, was the one that Jesus cast the seven, seven even, evil spirits out of. She never forgot His grace. But as Jesus looked down at His mother there at the foot of the cross, it was her that captured His heart. And I'm sure it intensified His own suffering, watching her go through what she was going through. She had brought him into the world, gave him life. And then when he speaks to her, you notice he calls her woman. Have you ever wondered why? Because he was severing that old relationship between mother and and son. In other words, it signaled a shift in how they were to relate to each other. If you go to John the second chapter, verse 4, you will see there that he also called Mary woman, but he told her there, my hour has not yet come. In other words, it's not quite time yet. But now that hour was here. And she was watching it with her very own eyes. But the thing about it is, you need to understand. She needed Him to die for her. The same as each one of you needed Him to die for you. And the story don't end there. Because he was concerned about his sorrowing mom. Here he is being tortured to death and in compassion for her loneliness, for her loss. Jesus turns to John, the only disciple that stood with him and the women at the cross. And that tells us, or it's apparent to me, that Joseph has died already by this time. And Jesus had some half-brothers, but they weren't believers of Christ at this point, but later on they would be. So who else did he have to give mom to but John? In other words, he guaranteed her well-being by giving her to John, the one he loved. So, we see the compassion that Jesus had. Even though he was going through all he was going through, he was still more worried about his mother than he was himself. Bible scholar William Barclay wrote in his commentary on the Gospel of John, and I quote, There is something infinitely moving in the fact that Jesus, 
in the agony of the cross, when the salvation of the world hung in the balance, thought of the loneliness of his mother in the days of head. Even on the cross, Jesus was make, thinking more of the sorrows of others than of his own. If that's not the definition of compassion, I don't know how to define it. Because in the midst of all of this intense suffering Jesus was going through, He cared for those He loved, and in so doing, He concluded His dealing with man. Now His focus shifts upward to the purpose behind it all. And that was the awful task of becoming the Lamb of God. The the sin-bearing sacrifice for the lost human race. And that brings me to my next point, which is the majesty of completion. In John 19, in uh, verse 30, when Jesus therefore had received the vinegar, the sour wine, He said, it is finished. And He bowed His head and gave up His ghost or His spirit. Now, it is finished. Y'all know what that word finished means? It means paid in full. It is complete. It is done. I've done it. I, I did what I came to do. The Bible tells us in Matthew twenty-seven fifty that Jesus' words were cried with a loud voice. In other words, it was a victory shout. Jesus commitment to God's plan had been evidenced all throughout His earthly ministry. And and He had carried that commitment all the way to the end. The Bible tells us in Philippians 2.8, obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. In other words, He had done it all. He had He had left no prophecy unfulfilled, no work unfinished, no love unshared, no suffering unaccomplished. He had done it all. He completed all that His Father had sent Him to do. It is finished. And then He rested. But it wasn't the rest of weariness that Jesus experienced. He had completed salvation. No more sacrifices were ever needed. No human effort would ever be required. As a gift of eternal grace, Jesus had completed salvation once for all, for all of us. One last point, and we're going to quit. And that is the majesty of control. In Luke 23, verse 46. And here it is. And when Jesus had cried with a loud voice, He said, Father, into Thy hands I commend My Spirit. And having said this, He gave up or breathed His last up the ghost. Now, Notice the composure of Jesus here. He had done what He said. He had paid for sin. 
He had secured redemption. He had become the ransom of suffering and death. All for the joy that was before Him endured the cross, the Bible tells us in Hebrews 12 too. So all that was left for Him to do was to finalize it. To give up His ghost. To die. Yet even here, He was in control. Notice carefully how Jesus addressed the God of heaven during the last six hours of suffering on the cross. At the outset of the crucifixion, He turned to His Father in seeking pardon for sinful man. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. At the instant the sins of the world were placed on His shoulders, the whole reason, the whole purpose that He came, He cried, My God, My God, why hast Thou forsaken Me? That was the cry of abandonment. Once the deed was done, He again cried, Father, mission accomplished. Redemption restored. Relationship restored. Fully aware of all that had to happen. Fully aware that all that had to occur. Jesus dismissed His Father to the Spirit at precisely 3 p.m. the exact time of the evening sacrifice. Then He died. You see, He powerfully fulfilled His own words. He powerfully fulfilled His purpose. Words that fully showed His control when He says, Therefore doeth my Father love me, because I lay down my life, that I take it up again. No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down myself. You find that in John 10. Verses 17 and 18. What I want you to get out of this today was everything that Jesus went through, He was ever submissive to His Father. He never once tried to duck out. He never once tried to say, I ain't going to do it. He was obedient. To the Father's will. And then, once it was all done, all said, and all finished, He committed His Spirit to the Father. And He gave up His goals. That was for each one of us. That's how important Jesus dying on the cross was. No man on the face of the earth would give up his son to go through what Jesus went through if it didn't accomplish something. God would have never allowed it. It was for the pardon of your and my sins. Next week, we're going to continue on. And we're going to look at the third installment of Jesus and His death.
Let's pray. Father God, I just thank You for this time that we've had today. Father, a time to come together as brothers and sisters and just hear Your Word, Father. And we just thank You so much that You were willing to allow Your Son to die such a horrible death that we might live. Father, we just ask that You forgive us where we fail You. Father, we saw today we're born with that sin nature. And we struggle with that sin, Father. Just like your Apostle Paul said, the things I should hate are the things that I love, and the things that I should love are the things that I hate. So Father, just cleanse us. Make us whole. And just help us to try to live in obedience to You. Father, we just thank You for loving us. We thank You for Your grace, the blessings that You give. And Father, we just ask as we live here today that You guide and direct us, that You continue to protect us in this very challenging time that we live. Father, I pray for the folks that are not with us today. I pray for the folks that are suffering through the Severe weather that, that's going on in the southeast, Father. A lot of laws, lives lost there. Those people need Your love right now. And Father, we just pray for all the folks that we've got on our prayer list that, that have needs. And we just ask You to meet those needs. So Father, we just ask You to watch over us. Guide and direct each step that we take this week. Help us praise Your name. And help us be a shining star in this very dark world that we live. In Your Son's name we pray. Amen.